0: So in this series, we've got here on the board how to study our Bible. We've, uh, we've actually hit on three huge topics thus far. It's really lame. That, uh, lame. Lay the framework for us to be able to jump into the, the Word of God with the right set of eyeballs and and uh, the, the first thing that we ever, that we talked about a few weeks ago was really engaging the Word of God not out of religion not out of something that we have to do but but for relationship you know and last week we even talked about that I, that I find myself on the operating table and the skilled surgeon which is Jesus with his double edged sword of the word you know is carefully executing surgery you know and, and pulling stuff out of my life that I don't even want to be there really in the first place. Stuff that ultimately has kept me from life and abundance, something that he's paid for me to have here on this side of heaven. You know, is that making sense so far? So we, so we engage him for relationship. We, uh, that's, that's the reason that we're there in, in the first place. We become like him in that place as we behold him. You know, you know you become like those who you hang out you know, have you, I, I spent some time with my, with my brother, who uh, I, we, we see each other a couple times a year only, and uh, I mean, obviously, we grew up together, right? I mean, but, but I'm better looking, and that's, you know, it is what it is. Sorry, Mike. But I came away from, uh, from just a dinner meeting with him, and I, found, I could hear myself talking like him. It's weird. And I do the same thing with my own father, you know. I come, I, I come away with, uh, with, with having a dinner or something with, with my dad, and I can hear myself or I can see myself acting like him. It's like I absorb it like a sponge. We literally become like those who we spend time with, those who we behold, those who we look at. And so as we encounter God in relationship, we become like him in that place. And it's a glorious process of, you know, uh, of just that give and take in relationship of becoming beautiful like he's beautiful. So this the second thing is we determined that the Bible is actually spiritually discerned. We talked about how in Corinthians, Paul says, look, we didn't get the Bible through our own intellect, through, you know, through my own logic. I didn't think this stuff up. It was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And as such, it's spiritually appraised. And what's that mean? That means that unless I have the Holy Spirit, it's foolishness. Unless, I have, unless I'm viewing it, unless I'm walking out my reading and my understanding of the Word in conjunction with, in relationship with the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to come to the right conclusions. The reading of the Word of God should be a spirit-to-spirit encounter. It's like, it's like the extension of the first point, which is relationship with Him. I'm, I'm in relationship with the Holy Spirit, and it's only in that place that I can rightly divide the Word of God, that I can rightly discern what it is that was His intention when He breathed it from His own lips uh, into the apostles apostles in the first place so and then last week we talked about how how the bible has preset bumpers in place that that it uh, that it uh, implies that it imposes that's a better word that it imposes bumpers or parameters on the scripture on itself that allows us to be able to interpret the word more rightly i said in first service that you know you read a scripture and this is totally goofy but you read a scripture that talks about like jesus murdering somebody because he was filled with hate you kind of go wait a second Uh, Because I know he's the God of love and hate, like like, you know what I mean. You find something that you go, well, wait a second. That's funny. That doesn't make sense to me. The self-imposed parameters that we find in Scripture allow us to be able to weigh what we're actually reading and then come to a conclusion that's actually biblical, or you know, that, that that has its essence intact. You know, and so we kind of ended last week talking about the life of Christ. And that I had put a heavy emphasis on the fact that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father. Do you, those of you who are here, you remember that. But I want to say this morning that he, he's not only an exact representation of the Father, but he really represents, as he relates to you heart to heart, he really represents the fullness of the Godhead in its perfection, not just the Father. See, because he's the exact representation of the Father, that means that when we saw Jesus, we were literally looking at the Father. You know, everything he did, everything he thought, the way he was, his character, his attributes, how he lived his life, everything was exactly the Father. You were seeing the Father dressed in this flesh suit that we call a body. And you could, Jesus even said, if you looked at me, if you see me, you've seen him. If you know me, you've known him. Right? So he is that, but he, the, the Son was also completely filled with the Holy Spirit. And in his baptism with John, it says that the Holy Spirit came and rested on him. So he was filled with the Holy Spirit in perfect communion in perfect relationship with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit also rested upon him to further the gospel, the, the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom. You know, And then lastly, obviously, he is the Son of God himself. He was the Son of God in flesh. So really, he embodies all three perfectly well. When we look at Jesus, we're seeing the Godhead in motion. We even see times where he's dialogued you know, with the Holy Spirit and the Father speaks. We see all three of them communing together in the perfection of relationship. So we're able then, if, if Jesus modeled to us the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he's the exact representation, we can take that and we can set him in place as a measuring rod for everything that we read in the Scriptures. So as we read stuff that seems somehow to be contrary, we can look at it against the life of Christ and go, wait a second, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus did. And so it causes you, or it should cause you, to actually question the interpretation that you're coming to. Well, what did I? How, how did that flesh out in the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What did that look like? What? How did Jesus operate? What did Jesus say about that sin? What did Jesus say about money? What did Jesus say about adultery? What? How did he operate? How did he work with this sinner? How did he? You know, and we allow those things then to be a filter for how we view the character, the nature of God, or those commandments that He's uh, rolling out so that we can live our lives better before Him. Again, it becomes a measuring. Run. Rod, you know, by which, or, or, or parameters, bumpers, like I just picture a bowling alley, you throw that baby down there. I mean, how many of you need bumpers? I think I bowled a 50 the last time I was there. You and me, you and me. So I need the bumpers, right? And I need the bumpers as I view scripture, like the fruit of the spirit, the life of Christ. I need these bumpers to come to the place where I can rightly divide or rightly interpret the word that's sitting in front of me so that kind of brings us to, up to today you know, with that foundation laid I, I really want to get into the the nuts and bolts kind of the nitty-gritty of what it looks like to actually read the scriptures you know we've been laying foundation for you like like as you begin to jump off into the depths of the Word of God you know here are the things that you that you want to apply you want to posture yourself in communion with God and all that now I want to get down to just the kind of the nitty-gritty this is what it actually looks like to challenge the word to question the word to read it to commune with God and, and, and I want to show you a few more tools to help you ultimately come to the right conclusions. Is that, is that all right? I hope that you will find that it is immensely practical and, and helpful to you, you know, as you continue, continue to pursue relationship. I'll speak eventually. I was too excited about my water bottle. <laughs> Still talking, but I need water. <laughs> all right, I talked uh, several weeks ago now, to, well, not to you guys, the first service I started this out. And I said then that there are actually two ways that I approach scripture or that I read scripture and I do this all of the time. At any given time I'm doing both of these things. The first one is sequentially. I read the Bible sequentially. And so let's just take the New Testament, for example. If I start in Matthew, I read Matthew, I read Mark, I read, you know, Luke, I read John, I read Acts, I read, you know what I'm saying? I I go sequentially book by book. You know, I don't I don't try to try to match it up in terms of when they were written or any of that. I just read it as it was canonized and put together in my Bible, right? book after book sequentially, but at the same time, I also read topically. You know so I'm so I'm reading through chapter by chapter verse by verse sometimes word by word depending on how the Lord apprehends me in that reading you know and eventually at some point and I haven't actually set any sort of goal in this at some point I'll get all the way through the book of Revelation and I'll flip flop and I'll start over I read the New Testament like that and I read the Old Testament like that in, in two se- two separate settings you know yeah, is that making sense like I don't read the Old Testament and the New Testament necessarily every single time together but I am reading them all sequentially all uh, all throughout the course of the year are you following me? And, then, and that sequential reading begins to stir up in me, obviously, the topical uh, pursuit of being able to uh, ultimately find out or excavate the truths that, that I find in Scripture. And so, so as we read through sequentially, how I typically do it is as I get to, let's just say Matthew will continue to pick on that book. The first thing that I want to do, even with all my degrees and all of the, the study, and I, I was talking with Chris, it's a revelation to me. I've been at this 20 years now. You know, going after, studying the Word of God, and, and, and just, it's, I can't even believe that that's true, but, but it is true. But even after all of that time spent in the Word and studying, I don't know if your brain is like this, but I still can't remember who the, maybe the author is or why it was written or when it was written, you know? And so the first thing that I do is I begin to ask questions Why was the book of Matthew written? Who was it written to? Was it a Jewish audience or was it a Greek audience, a Gentile audience? You know, when was it written? Who wrote it? What was the purpose behind their writing? Because we find even in the gospel accounts that there are several different accounts. All of them had a different purpose or an intent for writing that gospel account you know in even a different flavor like the gospel of luke written by a doctor you know he highlights certain things by his own perspective that stood out to him that would be different from matthew who was writing to predominantly a jewish audience that's why you see differences in the lineages and you see all those things breaking down so i'm going to ask the question why is it written who's it written to what's it about and in my bible it actually gives me the it calls it the christ of the book it tells me here's where jesus is in this book you know, in, in the book of Revelation, here's the whole point wrapped up in a synopsis, and here's where you can find Jesus. You know, in the middle of that, which I find that profoundly valuable. You know, and, and ultimately the time frame that it was written. Uh, you know, so the first thing is, again, I'm I'm looking through that uh, at this place in my reading. I also am discovering what type of book is before me. How many of you know there are different genres in Scripture and you ultimately have to interpret those genres, genres specifically? Like, each, like, for example, you have the wisdom books, you have apocalyptic books, you have poetic books, you have historical books like the Gospels and different ones. You know there are, there are a number of different types of books or genres within the Bible and each of those require you to have a different set of eyeballs on when you're reading them or else you won't come to the right conclusions. For example... The poetic books are just that. They're more like poetry, right? So you're going to find hyperbole, exaggeration. You're going to find uh, a lot lot more symbolism than what you would find perhaps in a historical book, something like that. You know, wisdom books, similarly, you see a lot of hyperbole. Um, In wisdom books, the funny thing about these, and this is where I think a lot of people get really confused, is that wisdom book actually makes a lot of statements about things as fact. But the reality to a wisdom book is that they're only fact within a given set of parameters. It's like when A, B, and C line up together in this specific environment, then this fact is true. You know, and unless you know that, you read it and you see this, this fact or a very direct authoritative statement and you immediately apply it universally all over Scripture. And either one, you're going to come up with contradictions, or two, you're going to have erroneous theology because you've just interpreted the, a wisdom book incorrectly. You know, another thing that you find with wisdom books is that they will, they will state something authoritatively that is simply to prove a point. You know, it's uh, I, 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 I talked about the height of an individual. I don't want that to be mistaken with stuff like Goliath, because he was, in fact, really big. You know, uh, but to use that example again, it'll it'll exaggerate a point. And, you know, it'll say, "And she was nineteen feet tall, or whatever." But it's it's a point to talk about how foreboding that individual was. It's not to say to the nth detail as you break it down, it must be that that person was nineteen feet tall. An example of what I'm talking about can be found in Psalms chapter four and verse seven, I believe. Yeah. And it says here that wisdom is supreme. Psalms is a wisdom book, if you didn't know that. Uh, it should be clear, I guess, by the content that's there. Proverbs is a wisdom book. The book of Job, interestingly, is a wisdom book. You know, and so again, we have, to, we have to approach the book of Job in this light. You know? And so we see that in Psalms it says that wisdom reigns supreme. Wisdom is supreme. Now that should trip an alarm for you. Because all of you guys who are New Testament scholars should immediately start thinking of 1 Corinthians 13. And what does that say? In essence, what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us is that we can have wisdom, that's fine, but if we don't have love, wisdom's going to burn up. Like, wisdom is garbage, it's utterly useless unless you have love. Now, I don't know about you, but that tells me that love reigns supreme, not wisdom. I'm looking at Psalms and understanding that it's a wisdom book. And so I look at it and I understand that it's not making an authoritative statement regarding wisdom that trump's love or trump's all of the other statements that we find throughout the entirety of scripture. But rather what it's doing as a wisdom book is it's setting wisdom out and trying to make a very strong point regarding wisdom and the nature of wisdom. And honestly, if you want to say like or put it within the box that I had just spoken of before, wisdom does reign supreme when love is in place when All these other parameters are in place. At that point, then you can make that statement authoritatively. Are are you following me? So when I read it and I interpret it through the eyes of understanding that this is a wisdom book, it doesn't cause me alarm. I don't think, oh my gosh, that's a contradiction. The Bible will just throw it out. It must all be wrong. No, I realize because of the genre that's being laid out there that I have to look at this particular book with a little bit different set of eyes. Are you following what I'm saying? So we also have some of the books that we find in the New Testament called Epistles. And maybe I referenced it just a second ago. An epistle is any book that's written in the New Testament. Uh, In fact, they're all written by the Apostle Paul. Where he's actually writing a letter of instruction to local bodies local churches. So we find Ephesians, Philippians, Corinthians, you know, all of those Indians that you find... You know, these are all epistles. They're letters of instruction from the Apostle Paul to the churches. And Chris and I absolutely love the epistles, and here's why there's very little hyperbole. There's very little, there's very little exaggeration. They're very, very direct. In fact, I love the entire New Testament because of this, because there's a lot more of that directness than what there is in the Old Testament when you're doing like narrative stories and things of that nature, you know, but it's, it's authoritative. It's straight to the point. It's like, look, Hey, you're an idiot. If you do that, I'm like, I don't want to be an idiot. (laughs) It's, you know, it's really clear. It's really direct. It's really straightforward. It's really for me. And it's really awesome. Like it's, it couldn't be like, there's, I don't have to worry about it. It's, it's pretty clear. Do this. Don't do that. Yes, Lord. You know, it's very straight. I love the epistles, but they're not without their interpretive issues. See, because we have to realize that the epistles also, to say this again, are very specific letters written to very specific churches and very specific localities at a very specific point in time. And in some cases, those very specific letters that were written for very specific issues actually include Paul's response, like in the case of Corinthians, his response to a letter that they had written him asking a number of questions. That's what Corinthians is, if you didn't know that. It even says that I don't know where the verse is, but in essence, they wrote a letter and said, "Paul, we're having all these issues in the local church. I'd love to be able to write Paul a letter right now, but like Brandon. How do I deal with Brandon? This guy, like, what deal with this guy? You know, so it's a very specific letter that's written. In this case, you need to know about the about Corinthians as an epistle, as a specific book written for specific or to address specific issues in a local church. Can I say that anymore? All right? Let's get the point home you need to understand that sometimes the Apostle Paul will say something that sounds rather author- authoritative, right? Yeah. And, and then he gives this whole long thing. In and, and either one, you go, well, wait a second, that's a contradiction. I can't believe that you're saying that. Or you just get utterly confused and stop reading the book. We have to realize that in many cases in Corinthians, Paul's actually stating the question that was asked him by the Corinthian church and then giving the answer behind it. Now, unless you know that he's doing that, you think he's schizophrenic, or a freak? Like you think he's er- like erroneous in his theology? I can assure you, he's not. You know, you know, you're you're thinking something like you're utterly confused, or at very bare minimum, you're thinking this dude's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. This is where we come into problems with women in leadership in the church today. You know, I mean, for more information about that, we've got the series "Women Should Be in the Kitchen in the Back." <laughs> Chris, Chris, Chris picked out that that title, not me. So, his email address is online, ladies, so you can you can talk to him. But this is where we come into this issue. Paul is addressing a very specific issue in a very specific church, and he says very specific things in relation to that issue You know, a couple of thousand years ago at that first church. So what we've done then is we've taken these things that he's saying, and we've taken them as as authoritative words that apply unilaterally across all of the rest of Scripture. Here's the problem. He contradicts himself over and over again. The words that you find where he's addressing that specific church, when you apply them universally across the entire bible you find out wait a second paul's actually championing women in ministry in other places there's inferences to women apostles there's direct statements about women uh deacons there's you know it's all throughout all the scripture he's talking about hey i want you to show the same honor that you showed me to these women who have been ministering alongside of me for the gospel of jesus christ what i thought women should be silent in the church You see what we do. We take the, you have to understand. Look, this is why it's important to know what you're reading. Otherwise, you will not come to the right conclusions. And in the end, you'll have erroneous doctrine, in this case, doctrine that's lasted for a couple of hundred years in the church. And to this day, churches in our community hold to an erroneous view based on, I was going to say, bad exegesis, but Chris would be the only one who would understand what I was saying. (laughs) Bad interpretation of those scriptures.
1: Are you hanging in there?
0: Is this making any sense? Yes. All right. Let me make a note. I probably should have said this earlier. But let me make a note to say that it's immensely important for all of you, and if you can't afford it, we'd be happy to, to help out with that because it's that important to me for you guys to get a study Bible. If you're, if you're serious at all about the Word of God, you need to have a study Bible in your hand. And the reason is because a study Bible, all of them that I've ever found, has a topical concordance. Mine has one in the front and one in the back, both of them for different purposes. It, it even, mine even has lessons and stuff in there, but I teach lessons. I don't read them, so <laughs> I'm not teasing. I'm teasing. You know, but but every single book in my Bible is prefaced with 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 a couple of pages, uh, you know, that describe, like I said before, the Christ of the book, when it was written, who it was written to, what it was written for, all of that stuff. Is actually, right here in my study Bible, I, I don't have to go searching. I don't have to spend my entire quiet time searching through the internet looking for that information. Here it is, right here. Every time I start the book, right there it is at the, at the very beginning. You understand? You know, again, the topical index or concordance is is, is there. I even have cross references. So when I see something written and it has a little cross reference, I could go, oh, oh, you mean that was stated somewhere else and I can look at a theme or I can look at another scripture and kind of go, oh yeah, I'm kind of starting to get the picture on that now. It's all right there in a, in a study Bible. So if you don't have one, you absolutely have to get one and we'll help you get one because it's that important. You know, uh, I stumbled onto an NASB, New American Standard Version, a a long time ago. Uh, This very Bible was actually given to me by my father-in-law as a graduation gift from high school. Yes, I've been married to my wife that long. (laughs) And uh, you know, he gave me this Bible. He actually handed it to me and he said, if you could wear this out in a year, I'll buy you another one. Like, now that's value for the word right there, you know, and, uh, and, we, and we've taken that seriously and I've done my best to wear it out, but uh, it was a good one. So I haven't worn it out yet, you know, and even if it's worn out, it's time for duct tape because this has every note and every highlight and all, you know, I mean, it's just crazy chewed up with this awesome revelation from God and connections and my own little notes and I actually keep my own concordance as the Lord begins to speak to me things, maybe I'll make a notation. The other day I made a notation in here. I said, see your concordance on topic. Da, 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 da. I wrote that in the scripture so that the next time I come to that in my reading, I don't have to recreate the wheel. I can go, oh, I've already got a download on that. And I can go find that and I can search it through. And that's a, I guess that's a side note. I would, I would recommend that the New American Standard a, a, as one of them that would be an excellent translation for you. It was meant to be very accurate uh, to the original Greek. So it, for the longest time, it was actually held as the most accurate Bible that's out there. Uh, it's, it's what I'm used to. I'm not going to change. A couple of other good ones for you, the, the English Standard Version, ESV, that's what Chris uses. Uh, it's an, as far as I can understand, it's an equally good version. Uh, but in addition to that, I would recommend that you get a new King James or a modern King James, something like that, version of the Bible as well. And, and the reason for that is because the, the King James Version, if you didn't know this, is the only Bible that was translated from the oldest manuscripts that we have available to us today. It's the only one. Every other translation of the Bible was translated from younger from younger manuscripts. And so what you find in that, as you're cross-referencing and looking at different Bibles, you'll find sometimes that the King James Version actually has stuff written in there that you don't have in your Bible. That's going to be significant. That's going to be important to you. You know, even the different translations sometimes maybe will say something in a different way and it captures your attention and allows the Holy Spirit to speak in a new way too. So there's value there as well. Now, the New King James, I would recommend that over the Old King James, the old King James is riddled with contradictions and problems, uh, translation issues. The new or the modern King James versions have actually gone through and corrected all of those issues, uh, and of course, they've eliminated the uh, the old King James English. Like I, I can't, I'm sorry. I just, this I. I can't do it. I can't. Uh, I, this is, don't, don't give a new King James to a new believer. They'd be like, "This thou, thou art. I give, I, OK, I don't know what that is." You'd have to, you, have to, you have to have tongues to learn to know it, like, to read it. <laughs> you know? It's like a, ancient uh, language. So, so enough on that. Go buy yourselves a, a backer or a, a study book. They even have maps. You know how many times I've gone to maps and I've looked and said, "How far away was Galilee?" You know, I don't want to look in the back of my Bible. I don't have to go searching through Google and all this. I know I've got a good authoritative, something that's been thought through by scholars and checked off on in my Bible, in my hand, that I can look at and I can reference and go, oh, yeah, this is going to be accurate. I can trust it. You understand? You know, so all that stuff's there, you know, in a good study Bible. So heartily recommend that for you. All right, so... As I begin to read with all that background, understanding at this point, I want to remind you that we've postured ourselves with, for communion with God. You know, so I'm not reading for the sake of reading. I'm not trying to pass time. I'm not trying to sharpen theology per se, though that's certainly a part of what happens. I'm engaging God. I'm posturing myself for a spirit to spirit encounter. I'm dialoguing with Him actively as I go. As I approach the word and I begin to read it, I take that word at face value or literally. Unless the text tells me that I shouldn't, or unless I see a very obvious contradiction. You know, so I read it, and I understand it to say that Jesus kills kids or something stupid. You know, it's like, okay, wait a second, that seems like a contradiction. We all know better than that, God is love, right? There seems like there's a contradiction there. So obviously you want to take a, you want to take a full stop, and you want to look into that or investigate. Otherwise, we take it for face value. For example, you know, in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus Christ dying, Raising again on the third day, leaving an empty tomb, and then ultimately appearing physically to more than 500 people on the earth during that time. Giving instruction for what they should do after that, right? Now... If I'm reading this, I'm reading this in the gospel accounts. The gospel accounts are what we call historical works, historical books. As such, I can trust that what's written there is historically accurate and and factual information. So it's going to have a lot less hyperbole. It's going to have a lot less poetic type language. It's going to be pretty direct. What I'm reading is going to be true. So as such, because I know I've done my due diligence at this point to determine which book I'm actually looking at, at this point as I jump in, I know that I can trust that Jesus actually raised from the dead, physically, that he did physically show himself to other people. Now, that's not rocket science, right? That's pretty simple stuff. But I'm here to tell you, this is a major point of debate. People believe that Jesus only rose spiritually, not physically. This is a whole line of argument that's out there. You can't come to those conclusions if you rightly divide the word, if you actually apply the principles that I'm giving you today. You have to come to the conclusion that what was written there was accurate, was true, was historical, that he really did rise from the dead physically. You can't come to any other determination. The Bible itself does not give me any clue or any reason to doubt that conclusion. Now, those same works, the gospel accounts, which we know now are historical works or historical accounts, they, they talk about Jesus as being the bread of life. How many of you have read those scriptures? So Jesus is the bread of life. Well, that, it doesn't make any sense for me to go, well, wait a second. The pastor told me it's face value. It's literal, unless there's a clue in the text. So Jesus must be bread. Well, last I checked... A human being is flesh and bone and blood and hair, in my case. You know, not bread, right? Unless you go to one of the Asian places and then sometimes you get hair in your bread. That's just another story. (laughs) Wow, it's going downhill. (laughs) So it doesn't make any sense for us then to interpret Jesus being the bread of life as anything other than a metaphor, See, the text itself is obvious. It's screaming out to me that it's not literal. It's obviously something else. You know, and as something else, now I'm charged with the task of trying to figure out, well, what was he talking about? If he's giving me a symbolic or a metaphorical reference here, there's a deeper spiritual meaning then to what he's applying as a description to himself. You know, and I need to search the scriptures to find that out. That's where we find a good topical study is in order. And that's why I'm always doing sequential and topical all at the very same time. My sequential reading always leads me to a topical study, which takes me forever. And that's why I don't get through the Bible in a year. I may not even get through a sentence in a a sitting because of this very thing right here. And so if you flip up on the board, we determined first service that this is absolutely useless because nobody can see it. So I apologize in advance unless you are you know if you're if you're further than 3 rows back you're just going to have to take my word for it. <laughs> but I've mentioned to you before this product called esword e-sword.net. I'm going to encourage you again to go and download that. It's a free resource. I have looked at paid resources. I still go back to esword every single time. It is an excellent Uh, resource to find. In fact, Chris told me the other day that there was a professor or somebody who had said there's one amazing like five million dollar, you know, uh, program out there. What's it called, Chris? Uh, Logos. There's a Logos software. Go and look it up. It's ten thousand dollars to get the best one. And his professor had said, look, outside of Logos, which for ten grand it ought to be good, he said eSword is the next best thing running and it's free. Okay, (laughs) I like free. Ten thousand dollars sounds like a house, <laughs> you know, so, I, so this is Esword, this is the program, there's a couple of different ways that you can do a topical study with Esword, are you hanging in there, are we all right, we're, we're running out of time, we're in a hurry, but I, you know, this is, I hope, this, this is practical, and uh, I know it's practical, whether you apply it, now that's on you, <laughs> so there's a couple of ways to do a study, you can't see it, but right here is, is type the, the word bread, when I type the word bread into a topical search in the Eastward, it brings up every single English rendering of the word bread throughout the entire Bible. Every time bread is mentioned, it gives me the reference and it lines it out for me. Old, New Testament, everywhere. Now, I can filter that down if I want to just the epistles, to the book of Acts. I can do the Psalms, Proverbs. I can search independent books so it doesn't have to be the wide expanse you know, of the entirety of Scripture. But you can see here, it gives me the outline of a number of different Scriptures. The other way that you could do it is to actually look at a text. And if you'll slip to the next slide, please. If you look at an individual text, in this case, John chapter 6 and verse 35, it says that Jesus is the bread of life. Here, the word bread has a little green number that follows it. That green number is a Strong's number that links the English word that you're reading with a Greek word in the Strong's concordance. It's immensely powerful. It's the probably the, the, your go-to tool in, in most cases. And so, right down here, then, because I've selected my Strong's concordance, I get a list then of not all of the words that are not all of the words in the New Testament that line up with bread. I get a list of every scripture that has that specific Greek word written. And I find out in this case, there are 99 references in the New Testament alone to bread. See, now, now we're getting serious. Now, if you're me, in my study, how I work is, I go through all 99 references almost every single time. And at this point, you say, I don't want your job. You know? no, no, you should be doing it too. I I go through every single reference because inevitably there's some some monotony, some redundancy that's in there, but that redundancy drives the point home that every single time it's used, it's used in this exact specific way. It's gonna be pretty clear to me what he's talking about then when, when when he references himself as the bread of life, right? But every so often as you're going through the list in your topical study, you find like a diamond in the rough. You're like, oh, look at that. Look at how that ties to this and look at what it says and it blows your mind as to the revelation that you find on this one single solitary word. So I'm telling you now, it's worth going through every single one of those 99 references to be able to excavate the truth. And here is why it takes a little bit of time to study your Bible. Are we doing all right? It's like 1233. I blame Corey because worship was too good. All right, let's look at a quick scripture and uh, and we'll we'll just we'll try to get this plane landed and and uh, and yeah get you home to lunch. Anybody hungry? Okay. The next time you think that you're hungry, remember that Pastor Sean gets a cup of coffee and one single donut at at 7 a.m. and that's all I get until 3 p.m. Yeah. Anybody want to be a pastor? That's why I'm so hot. That's what Misty says. I don't know. Acts one eight. <laughs> Acts eight, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, when I begin to read a scripture like this, I'm going to begin to release a barrage of questions against this scripture. See, we should never be afraid of this process. I'm not here to prove my theology. I'm here to improve my theology. You know, My only agenda in this is relationship with the king and truth. I'm literally fleshing out truth. Not my truth, the truth of the word of God. That's what I'm actually after. So we have to ask questions and we have to be vulnerable and open ourselves up. And we can't be dogmatic about it. We really have to be open-minded to allow the Holy Spirit to penetrate bad thinking. For me... That took sending me to the backside of nowhere in India for God to literally reprogram my mind and my theology for me to understand how things started to work. I needed to get outside of my sphere of influence. I fear that I may have never gotten there had God not sent me outside of the influence of people who were talking in my ear and gotten me to a place where I could sit before him and allow him to personally teach me without the influences. You understand? Like, we're not here to, improve, uh, to, pr- to prove out our theology. We're here to improve it. So we shouldn't be afraid to ask questions of every single text. And it's okay if you don't get the answers immediately. Make the question, keep it in your own little set of notes, and come back to it in the place of prayer and dialogue with the Holy Spirit. In this case, I'm going to ask a number of questions. You know, who's receiving the power here in the Scripture? You know, when is the Holy Spirit uh, coming upon them? What, what, what's actually happening here? Is, is this experience that's being described? Is this something that's specific to the people that it's talking to, or is there a broader application where I can actually receive power uh, based on this scripture as well? Like, who's receiving the power? Who can receive the power? You know, what's it mean to be a witness? You know, and so I begin to ask these questions. If I'm reading sequentially. As we look at the book of Acts, I find that there are a lot of the answers already right there within the context of my reading. Obviously, there's a principle there that I'm communicating to you without you knowing it. You have to understand and read the context. For example, in verse 5, it says that this experience that we're talking about is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Okay? It says also there that it's going to happen in just a few days. So now I know that there's a baptism, it's called this experience, this power that's coming. It's called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's getting ready to happen 2,000 years ago, just a few days from when it was actually released verbally. I find out in verse 2 that he's speaking specifically to the apostles. Now, if, if, I don't, if I don't continue to read further, I may, be tempted to, I may be tempted to believe. Oh, wait, look, because Pastor Sean said to take it at face value, to read it within context, it says he's, he's speaking this to the apostles. Well, this is an experience that must just be for the apostles. But in context, I read in verse 15 that there were 120 different people in the upper room waiting for this baptism in the Holy Spirit. So that tells me that when this word was delivered to the apostles... The assumption of the first church was that this was an experience that they could have as well, right? I get all that just simply out of the context. You can take a look at the next slide. Now, I don't want to make any assumptions of, this, uh, of what I'm of reading. And so I'm going to begin to look at specific words. In this case, I want to look at power. See, I'm interested to know, what is he talking about? What does it look like? He says, you're going to have this experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is, this, what is this power? What does that have to do with it? And so I get in here and I start doing my study. There's power right there. I look at my Strong's Concordance. It's the Greek number 1411. And I find out that that word means dunamis in the Greek. And that dunamis means miraculous power and ability. So what did we just discover? That the, ba- the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit is miraculous power and ability. Now there's a lot of stuff said about the, Holy, about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but that's what Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says. You'll receive miraculous power and ability when the Holy Spirit comes upon you as is evidenced by the 120 who the Word was not given to. That's for everybody. Of course, you can flesh that out on your own as you continue to look forward or look, look through those scriptures. All right, we'll look at a couple of things and we'll officially land. Let's look at the word witness in here. Now, remembering that I've postured myself for communion with God, so I'm actively, as I'm walking through this, sometimes I'm just praying in the Spirit. Sometimes I'm just, I'm in that place where I've got that going on and I'm connecting in with him, it 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 edifies myself. Edifying myself looks like being able to better receive what the Holy Spirit's trying to deliver, right? And other times I'm being way more intentional to actually actively dialogue with him through that. Uh, Is this the next, yeah, no, look at the next slide. Let's look at the word witness. I don't want to leave any stone unturned. I want to make sure that I've excavated the maximum amount of truth from this. And so I find out via the same methods that that it's Greek number 3144 it's called Martus Martus And what I find out in this is that the word martus, or martus actually is how you say it, that martus actually means that I'm a witness, like I'm a legal witness in a court case, like judicially a witness, understand? And so I find out all of a sudden that there's this experience out there that's for me, that's the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which means when I have this encounter with Him, there's miraculous power and ability that's going to come on my life as a result of this encounter, and that I'm charged then, after this experience, to go and be a legal witness as to what I have seen and what I have heard as to my experience with God at this point. Are you following me? See, after all, what does a witness in a court case do? Well, they've either seen something or they've heard something and they're being called to account to be able to, to speak to that. Well, this is from my experience. This is what I've got. Every single one of us, as we stand before someone who is lost, we stand before them. It's as if we're being put on the witness table. You know, they, they don't know Jesus, okay? You know Jesus. You've had an encounter with him. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. There's, there's, a, there's something that's happened. You have had an experience. And it's unique to you. Well, there's certainly elements that are biblical that string throughout and that are, that are for everybody. But you've had a unique encounter with God. And you get to be able to just simply tell him what has happened for you. I don't understand all of the googly and the message and all the whatever you're trying to argue. I, I don't get it. But let me just tell you how it's happened for me. Let me just tell you what I've seen and what I've heard because the testimony that I have will prophesy to you that Jesus, the same Jesus that I'm testifying about, will do this for you in your life. And as I begin to release that testimony, something begins to happen in the spirit realm and it it shifts atmospheres and opens up hearts for open heart surgery begins to break the shackles off people's hearts and their lives and what once was foolishness to them all of a sudden now seems not foolishness but palatable to them it actually is more than palatable something begins to stir on the inside of them and they get to the place where they are compelled to call this truth and to take the plunge that we call salvation like this is how it happens it's an encounter with the Holy Spirit who takes the word and transforms it in someone's heart and makes that which was foolishness actually, actually wisdom. Wisdom for them. Is that making sense? At this point, we have some conclusion about what the scripture means, but we can't leave it there. You can't leave it at the place of, oh wow, well, that was good theology. Look, I've excavated the truth of Acts eight. Now I understand what's happening. You literally you cannot leave it there. I've postured myself for communion, but now I'm being incredibly intentional about it. Because my the, the, I'm going to move into a place of meditation, and my meditation has to draw me to a place of hunger. Because if I have just read that there's an experience in the body of Christ where there's this dunamis power that's released from heaven, that I can have this experience as a testimony from those 120 in the upper room, and I feel like maybe I don't have that dunamis power, now I'm going to be crying out to God for this very thing that I just read. I'm never even going to go on to Acts 1-9 until I fully fleshed this thing out before God. Oh God, I can't even exhibit your fruit of the Spirit without this dunamis power. I need you. How can I live If if the apostles in the New Testament expanded the kingdom in this way, then how could I think that I would ever being successful without this one thing oh god would you come? would you release this experience this encounter for me and if you're still not convinced about what you read maybe you just actually present it before the lord as a test maybe you just put it out there you say if this is true god then do it in me if this is true what i've just read i believe i've excavated then do it in me i have to have it if there's more of an experience in you come do it in me and if what I've read is, 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 is in, you know it's calling out sin in my life or patterns of behavior, I approach it the same way. I'm, oh God, do that in me. Make me a man after your own heart, God. Make me a champion for the, your purposes, God. May, take that selfishness from me, God. Let me be like what I just read in your scripture. See, that meditation has to move me to the place of longing in my connection, my spirit-to-spirit connection with God in this place where he brings transformation and removes things from my heart. It happens in your morning quiet time as you encounter him in the place of the word. And it's not enough that you just pray it because the word of God is nothing without application. Now you get to actually walk it out. So if it's convicted you that there's a sin that you need to remove, now you're accountable to that word. Now you know sin is in there and now you have to choose to walk in a different way. Pastor Misty has a a new blog post getting ready to come out. It's talking about the reality of stepping into by faith the fruit of the Holy Spirit as it opposes itself to the natural organic walking it out over the course of one's lifetime. Both are valid. What we hear very little about is stepping into them by faith. So I encourage you to keep your ears open. She's got that blog post coming I hear so many people, they say, I've got got 10 minutes in me. I have quiet time before God, and in 10 minutes I've exhausted every prayer I know to pray. I've read every scripture I know to read, and I sit there awkwardly before God not knowing what to do. I'm here to tell you, if you employ even a tenth of what I've presented to you in this series, gone are the days of awkward silence before God where you don't know what to do in your quiet time. And now you've entered into this place where you no longer will ever have time to satisfy the hunger that's been stirred up in your heart, that the, the chase of the topical study of finding that word through scripture, and that encounter that you have. Because look, we just read Acts 1.8, and that would have been more than an hour's quiet time, just that one scripture, if you'd have employed the tools that I've taught you over the last several weeks. It's more than an hour. You're going to spend a couple of days on Acts 1.8. You may not even get past it for the entire week because something's going to stir up on the inside of you. You're going to hunger and in that place of meditation, you're going to come back before the Lord and you're hungry for that experience to happen in your life. No, God, I need that and you're going to be crying out on a daily basis and you're going to be upset every time the alarm goes off and it's time for you to get ready for work or however your schedule works and then the next time you come, you say, you know what? I can't live like this. I don't have enough time to go after him during the day. I don't have enough time to excavate his word and I'm hungry for it and so you carve out an extra half an hour in the morning. You say, look, I'm willing to sacrifice my sleep because there's an encounter waiting for me in the excavation of truth in His Word and I'm hungry to meet Him in that place and I see the fruit of life in me, life in abundance being released as I encounter Him and His beauty in that place. This is what I'm telling you. This is the reality of the reading of your scripture, not some religious, dry, boring, dusty exercise that you have to do you know, because you're supposedly a Christian. This is what it looks like to read a, you know, a spiritually appraised word, a spirit-to-spirit connection, a relationship, a download from the heavenly places where you become transformed into the beauty that you see in our beautiful God this helping anybody today all right well let's pray because that will help us even more and then I'll get you off to lunch and uh, I would say forgive me for running over but I did it intentionally because I wanted you to hear all that so I hope that that was okay for you so if, but if you ever like get up at twelve thirty and leave I will call you out and we'll send the ushers to drag you back <laughs> so <laughs> no, I'm just teasing yeah father we just thank you that you have created us as spirit beings. That's what we are, God. We're so fixed on the flesh, you know, our intellect, our minds, you know, and we get so distracted by that. But God, you've called us to be spirit beings, connecting spirit to spirit with you. I'm asking today that you would press down this series into the people, into our hearts, God you would stir up such a hunger that it can't be quenched. Never again could it be quenched. Never again could the reading of your word take second place to the busyness of life. God, never again would the distractions or the busyness of kids hollering or all those things keep us from entering into that quiet place before you. God, we're at, we ask for forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness in that place where we've not valued your word in the way that you have designed for us to. And we ask that you'd bring transformation in our hearts, God, that we can encounter you in that place that, bore, that, that, that it would never be boring again. It would never be boring again, God. Life transformation and life in abundance just be imparted and released to your people, God, in Jesus' name.